Welcome to this podcast from Field Partner International. This is one of a series of interviews posted on our website and YouTube channel, where we will hear from experienced missionaries sharing stories and insights from their journeys. We are an online community and resource for Christian missionaries working across cultures. You can visit our website, fieldpartner.org, which features free video courses, blogs, podcasts, sermons, and more. Subscribe to this channel, our YouTube channel, or Facebook page to stay updated on our latest resources. Hello, I'm Christine Patterson from Field Partner. I'm a lifelong cross-cultural missions worker and now trainer. And I'd like to welcome you today to the next in our series of interviews which we're filming for the Field Partner community. It's such a privilege for me to conduct these interviews because I get to talk to some wonderful people, hear some amazing stories of God's faithfulness amidst the joys and challenges of cross-cultural life, and then I get to share these with you. So it's my joy today to introduce my latest guest, Jennifer Bishop. Jen and I discovered when we first met that we have something unusual in common. We both were born in Burundi, a tiny little country in the middle of Africa. Both Jen's parents and mine worked as missionaries in the same agency there. They were from different generations, but they knew each other. Jen herself has had quite a mix of cultural experiences, which she will no doubt talk about. Ross and I met her in 2017 when we flew to Burundi for Ross to be the plenary speaker at a missions congress in Bujumbra. And Jen came from Australia to represent her parents because they were unable to go. Since then, she's become a dear friend and advisor, a huge resource and help to us in Field Partner, for which we're very grateful. So thank you, Jen, for so much for, for agreeing to be interviewed. Why don't we start with your origins in Burundi? How did that come about and what came next? Sure. Okay. So my mum told me the story that in her, I think she was a teenager in um, her Sunday school or youth group, whatever that was back then. I think it was some kind of um, leadership, youth leadership program. Um, A woman called Meg Gilbo came and spoke and shared about Burundi and this call for, for people to go to Africa. And she pretty much decided then about the age of 14 that she would she would be going as a missionary. And so she went through teacher training and taught in London and then uh, went to missionary training, learned French and went to Africa. Um, in her missionary training, she was engaged to a British guy, um, but called it off and felt like, oh, well, I'm off to Africa. Maybe I'll never get married. Um, mm-hmm. And she landed there in her mid to late 20s and was a school teacher in a tiny, tiny little village called Kibuye up in the hills. And there she met about a year into her time there, an Australian engineer came and he was working with Tierfund doing a, a, a hydro project. So he'd come quite independently just to do um, his use his engineering skills. And he started to like her, but she was a little bit unsure since she'd been through a broken engagement that she really wanted something with him. Um, and I think he got the picture. So he started to show interest in another woman in a, in a, I think she was a nurse. And suddenly I think it catalyzed my mother to realize that she actually really liked him and she didn't want him to like someone else. So being in the middle of Africa, there wasn't a lot of, you know, other options. So they dated and got to know each other in a really lovely kind of context of sharing their mission kind of endeavors. And when they got married, um, they got married in Burundi and my grandparents went out to have a a wedding with them there in Africa. Um, 
And um, my dad then moved from Tier Fund to work with the same mission organization and extend his project out. So, yeah, they were missionaries, I guess, um, kind of tech, um, like, what do you call it? Like professional missionaries. So they had a job. My mum was a teacher. My dad was an engineer, but working with the mission that was supporting the church work there. And they had three kids while they were in Africa, two on furlough back in the UK, and I was born in Burundi. Um, And my older sister was born um, under very kind of difficult circumstances and they almost lost her and they were so glad that they'd gone to England to have their first baby. And then I was the second baby and my grandparents were understandably quite worried about my mother then having a baby in the middle of Africa without a lot of medical care, particularly because mm-hmm. my older sister had been so troubled as, it, you know, like the birth had been so difficult. So um, apparently when the, back then it's like a telegram coming from Burundi, uh, a telegram arrived. My Apparently my grandmother in the UK was shaking as she opened it up, just imagining that she was learning that her daughter had died in childbirth or something. But um, yeah, I was born just quite quickly in a little, in at midnight in the middle of Africa in a little hospital. And, and we, yeah, spent, I spent six years there. So I was about six when mum and dad decided to leave Burundi. Mm-hmm. They'd been there 10 years by that time. Yeah. Right. I should point out that Meg Gilbo, who was the, um, a cause of your mother's call is actually my big sister. So, <laughs> and and actually, my my parents were also married in Burundi. Was the very first um, Western couple to be to be married um, in that country. So, um, yeah, that's another area of com- commonality which I didn't know about. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay. So um, you were six when you went back. You went first of all to the UK. Is that right? And then to Australia. Yeah, we went to the UK for six months, I think. That was just a wrap-up period. Um, my father went back to Burundi just to tie up a few things. Um, they pretty much decided that sending us to boarding school was something they didn't want to do because the better boarding schools were over in Kenya or Tanzania. And so, and there was a little bit of political unrest at the time in Burundi. So the idea of us getting stranded at boarding school and not being able to come home um, being very little children, they decided we should go. So we went to the UK and we were all put in school for about six months. And that was really nice. So we got a white Christmas and we got time with grandparents. And um, it was real. I, I, My memories of that time are so strong. And I think it's because it was so different. The life was so different. You know, wearing wintry clothes and being indoors and the the trees and everything and the weather and the feeling, everything was so different, the smells and everything was so different. Um, But they always had a plan to go to Australia where my father's family are. So I I guess they had to make a choice to stay in the UK or go to Australia and they chose to go to Australia. So by the time we got to Australia, I was about, I was, I had my sixth birthday in the UK. So I was then six when we went to Australia. Yeah. Right, so that would that would actually give you what they call the third culture kid identity. Um, do you resonate with that? Do you feel that it fits you, or were you yeah. so young that it didn't really? Yeah, it's, it's quite interesting to reflect on. I definitely remember many years of wishing to go back to Burundi, and we would all say to each other, oh, I wish we could go back, wouldn't it be amazing? Because our memories were so happy there, and our childhood was so free, and... 
and things. And mum and dad would just say, if you went back, you'd, you'd find it very different. You know, you'd, it would be different to your memories as well as the fact that it had gone through some civil war. And so a lot of things would be different. Um, but I, th I think we definitely grieved that transition. You grieve your friends and you grieve the lifestyle that you've had. And um, I mean, we were young enough to kind of fit quite quickly into a new system. But I always grew up with a sense of I my my belonging was was kind of elsewhere in a way. So mm. that I'd come from abroad and my identity was abroad. And so I lived all my primary and high school years just wanting to go abroad in different capacities. I always mm. wanted to travel and, and live abroad. Mm. Whereas I found that quite different to some of my peers who just lived and grown up in the one town in Australia and that was all they knew and they really just wanted to stay in Australia and I found that quite strange. Mm. So, but you did do that then. You were you spent some time in West Africa, you spent some time in Korea. Um, so wh when were those different um, experiences? Yeah. yeah, so as I said, I was quite desperate to go abroad. So my first opportunity after university, I just went backpacking. And part of that, I went for three months to stay with some missionary friends in Africa, but they were in West Africa, in, in Guinea and in Conakry. And I was, I guess I was trialing out was missions for me. I wasn't sure if I wanted to go as a full-time missionary, if that was my calling, so to speak. Mm -hmm. um, so they were missionaries we knew from Australia. They'd got, they were from Africa. And it was quite a different experience because it was Muslim Africa, it was West Africa. It was French speaking, similar to Burundi, but, you know, my French wasn't very good. Um, so it was, yeah, just a really different experience. And I think it, I was quite hardy to travel and adventure and camping and eating different food and all of those things. But probably the culture shock I experienced in those three months was more isolation and and to be honest, boredom of living in a tiny little village with no stimulation. And I realized, oh, okay, this is culture shock. I'm experiencing culture shock. It was different to what I'd expected because I was ready for the culture shock of, you know, getting malaria or eating something strange or something like that, which, which I got, but didn't, I wasn't too phased by, but it was the boredom that really bothered me. And so mm -hmm. I realized, oh, okay, maybe that that traditional mission is not the calling for me, but I still love travel and culture. So I kept exploring that. And I went to, uh, I because I trained as an English um, teacher, I trained in literature and, and English at university. I love writing and things. So I then followed a friend who was teaching English in South Korea and I went and taught English there for two years mm -hmm. and um, taught first year young children um, in what they call a hogwan, which is a tutorial academy where they'd learn English. And then in my second year, I taught, I taught adults and I taught adults academic and business English more in the mm -hmm. city centre in a similar institute. And, and that was a great experience, but again, a totally different culture mm. and totally different lifestyle. Did you have lifestyle. any or cult, uh, training of any kind to do that? No, because that one I went um, totally in a secular capacity as an English teacher. Um, mm. I didn't go in any kind of church capacity. Um, and really the only qualification was I needed an, an a degree of any kind and I needed, um, uh, yeah, so they got my visa, paid for my accommodation, paid for my flight and everything, and I pretty much just turned up. So there was a period of time where 
my peer teachers helped orient me to to living in Korea. So showed me where to go and how to, you know, what things were what price and how to kind of basic basic Korean words and things. But a lot of it was just learned on the go. It was a kind of a unique experience because I was very immersed in the culture of other expats. So other English, Australian, New Zealand, Canadian, American teachers. So we very much kind of hung out with each other and had our little bubble um, and kind of coped together that way. Yeah. And, um, common thing, the, the phenomenon that happens. Yeah. Expat communities. Um, so that, but then um, you went back to Australia after that and just settled into life there or what? Yeah. What other intercultural experiences did you have? Yeah, so I had a bit of a broken heart during that time in Korea, dated someone and it didn't work out. And so I, was, I guess that, again, contributed to culture shock and a desire to go home and be close to family. So I went home and even though I didn't, you know, I loved culture and I loved travel and I wanted to live internationally, I kind of resigned myself to the fact that I think I'll stay home for a while and I'll try and settle in Australia. And the way I could cope with that was to be as immersed as possible with people of other cultures in Australia. So mm -hmm. I joined a church that was quite a large um, kind of multicultural church in Brisbane. And I started to volunteer within their, what they call a cultural ministry. So they had a lot of international students and um, kind of ethnic groups amongst Indigenous Australians, um, South Asians, South, South and Central Americans. Um, also, there was quite a large Filipino community and then a lot of Africans who were coming as refugees. So I started to kind of volunteer in that community and I was using my English teaching capacity to do a free English conversation class. And that mm. kind of went from international students into quite a large refugee ministry, which was really, um, really amazing. I really enjoyed it because there was a lot of Iranian refugees coming into Australia at, the, at that time, a lot of boat boatloads of people just washing up on the shore. And so there was a huge um, kind of need for helping refugees in the community and helping them with English and things. So we did a lot at that time. Yeah. Yeah. So um, a previous interviewee talked about the world on our doorstep, which is really what you're describing. Yeah. It's coming to Western countries in search of work or in search of sanctuary of some kind. Um, and so how, how do you think the Western world, the Western church can reach out to people? What, what do we need to do yeah. to prepare ourselves? Um, yeah. And what are the hindrances? I mean, it's a huge question and I think it's an amazing opportunity. And I think living in London, I, you definitely see and feel the multiculturalness of London. Everywhere you go, there's people of all, all different kind of colors and religion, religious backgrounds. And I, I think this is a massive opportunity at that time in Australia, there was quite a lot of resistance from the kind of the white Australians to waves of immigrants and and um, kind of outspokenness about, oh, you know, there's a mosque being built in our community and this is a huge affront to our culture and to our Christianity and things. And to me at the time, I, I found that so difficult to listen to because um, in my mind, it was like, 
we can't go to many of these cultures and we could never speak about Christianity to people in their country openly. And yet they're coming in droves into our community. This is an amazing opportunity, not a threat. Like, why do we see it as a threat? And um, unless we're so weak that our the, the walls of our Christianity just crumble under someone's, you know, someone building a mosque in our community rather than seeing that as an opportunity for us to, to reach people that we would otherwise not be able to reach. So, yeah, I've, I've found some of that kind of dialogue quite difficult, but rather than say combat it with kind of arguments, just kind of get in there and, and just start helping people start visiting families, talking to people, you know, around hospitality and food and things. And fortunately, because my parents, ever since going back to Australia, they were really involved in cultural ministry in their church and missions and mission support. And they were doing very similar things, you know, having refugees in their home and having, you know, community groups to kind of reach out to, to migrants in the community. So I felt like there was a support network around me of people who had a similar mindset but at the same time, you're always dealing with the people who just don't like change. You know, they don't like, they don't like, they feel a kind of fear or a bit of a xenophobia about people coming in. And I actually did a theology training um, in about uh, eight or nine years ago now. And, um, and I remember really learning in my theology training, like a lot of the, um, the theology of the exile where the the Jews were commanded to be a blessing to the nations. And when they stopped being a blessing to the nations and they started to just copy and, uh, and um, kind of blend in with the culture around them and adopt the kind of religious around them, that's when they were scattered. So they were either taken into to Egypt or they were taken into Babylon and, um, or they kind of became the diaspora and, it was almost like God forcing them to go and be a blessing somewhere else and to kind of hold on to their identity and their culture because because where they were being blessed, they were not blessing the world. As in when they were settled in their country, they were not blessed. They were not blessing the world. God would almost uproot them and send them and make them a blessing to the world. And so I think like really God's plan is that wherever we are, we are meant to bless the world around us and um if we don't go to the world, the world will come to us. And that's the way that God works constantly all the time. Right. So in terms of the hindrances that are in our hearts, you know, what what, what can we do to combat that? I think would training yeah. help? Would, do you think it's still valid? I see. Definitely. Yeah. 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 And, and I had to appreciate that, that for many people, it was, you know, it wasn't just kind of a, a lack of care or something like that. Often it's just when you're encountering someone from not only from a different culture and a different language, but very different social and economic background. And often it's these things that are actually harder than kind of skin color and things or perception. So it's really um, um, helping people kind of worlds come together. So I find, um, just really basic things like hospitality and um, skill sharing. So helping people do a language exchange or just talk about their culture is a really great one. But of course, giving people that kind of meta awareness, so kind of training about culture, training about other people's worldview and religion and beliefs is really invaluable as well. I think um, 
that one of the downsides of, of being from an English speaking background where we are the kind of the global language is a sense of we are normal and the rest of the world is different. And so helping people to understand actually the way we do things is just one way and it's not the way. Um, and so even that self-analysis of the way I think and the, the way I prefer things and the way other people think and prefer things isn't wrong. It's just a different way. And so how can you actually learn from them as well as kind of help help them understand your, your culture? Right. So, um, well, despite being raised in Australia, you are half English. Mm. So what prompted the move to come over? You just mentioned that you're now living in London. What prompted the move to come over here? And do you yeah. feel that was a cross-cultural move or is it more like coming to <laughs> uh, It's not a really big cross-cultural move, although there are differences that are noticeable. Um, so, I mean, the reason why I think um, professionally I'd kind of reached the end of what I was doing in Australia with my job and I wanted a change and I was looking around for a change. A friend in London had said, you know, there's plenty of work here and I was I'd gone through another breakup and so I was single and free to kind of move around and I wanted to move and so I came to London um, for, a, for a kind of new opportunity in many many ways and it's been great um, but as far as culture I think what I mentioned before about noticing the multitude of ethnicities is a big one particularly London um, but also I mean there's there's just interesting things about the British people so endearing things that I've learned to really love, but I found curious. So I think Australians are a little bit more blunt and British people are very, very, you, you learn that there's layers and there's a beautiful, lovely softness, but sometimes it's very guarded and it's you can take time to get to know people um, and then um, realise that sometimes you're never actually going to know what people think because they'll actually keep their feelings quite concealed. Um, mm -hmm. And, I mean, it's just very small, subtle things and, and a kind of a, a sense of social class here and the sense of the blue blood and the aristocracy and the kind of where you fit in a, in a social pecking order. I'd say that doesn't exist so much in Australia. We certainly have wealthy and middle class and, and working class, but it's not quite the same stratification of society. Yeah, so it's just curious. I find Christians here a lot more left-wing than in Australia. I find Australian Christians, in my experience, are quite conservative and right-wing, a bit more like American Christians, whereas here people are very conscious of the environment and very conscious about refugees and very conscious about, um, you know, ethics and justice, which is wonderful and it's a bit more my leaning. So, yeah, it's just a, an observation, you know, general yeah. observations. So you're happy being here? I, I'm really enjoying it, yeah. That's great. So you've been um, furloughed during COVID. Um, you were anyway for a while. And um, during that time, you were very kind and said that you would um, um, consult with us and give us some, some um, time to benefit us from your expertise, which we're very grateful for. But at the same time, you were actually developing your own business. Is that right? Um, yeah. Online? Yeah. So I've gone from English teaching and teaching refugees to doing theology and working for um, NGOs to more into using my English um, for, in a marketing capacity and really enjoying that. So um, when I met you guys in Burundi three years ago, I was really just starting to develop my marketing skills. And I came to London and worked in 
in an NGO in a marketing capacity. And when I was furloughed for three months this year, from May to July, I actually used that time to really develop my um, consultancy. So now I'm fully self-employed and doing marketing consulting, which I which I'm loving. Yeah. Great. So if anyone wanted to take advantage of your expertise, yeah. how would you? Yeah, so I mostly help coaches and consultants, so self-employed individuals, but also organizations like yourself. So people that are doing online training, people who are selling uh, workshops or information products, digital products or training. And I just help with um, lead generation. So finding your client and getting them on board. So if anybody's interested in that, please, you know, look me up at jenbishopconsulting.com and I'll be happy to do a free 30 minute consultation and give you some tips and advice and we would highly recommend her <laughs> great um, so, well anyway thanks Jen thanks so much for sharing and um, I hope people will get in touch with you and we certainly have benefited so much from um, all that you've helped us with thank you so much oh, thanks for taking as well today okay so that's it for this interview and where we Really would uh, be glad if you'd go across to the Facebook site and like us there and listen to the other interviews, which you can find the links for. And hope to see you next time. Bye-bye then. God bless. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Field Partner. You can watch or listen to more interviews by subscribing to this channel, our YouTube channel, or our Facebook page. For free cross-cultural mission courses, blogs, sermons, and other resources, visit our website, fieldpartner.org.